Question for you this morning. How important is Jesus to you? How important is Jesus to you? Let me take it a step further. How important is the truth of the gospel? How important is it to you? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We are entering Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 8. And if, if, if you would, just turn to your Bibles. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. And let's, let's take a look at verse 8. Uh, verses 1 through 8. This is, verse 8 is where Paul is going in the first eight verses. And I, and I ask you that question, how important is the gospel to you? How important is Jesus to you? Because what Paul is going to tell us this morning is this. There's nothing more important than your than the truth of Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, don't let nothing stand in the way. Look at Colossians 2, verse 8. It's where we're going. Colossians 2, 8 says, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition rather than on Christ. I joined the military in uh, 1989, and I was stationed in Virginia in 92, and Colossians 2, 8 became my life verse. Because I got saved, I, I, I did time in the Army and Navy, and that, at that point I was in the Navy, and I was on an aircraft carrier. And while all those jets were taking off up above, guess what uh, Fireman Ford was doing down below? He was evangelizing. He was evangelizing and sharing the gospel. But when you bring all those people together, you, 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 you see everything. You see atheism, Wiccan, uh, uh, Jehovah Witness, you see all the gamut of the different beliefs. And as a new Christian witnessing to these people, I didn't have my roots firmly rooted in the Word, you know, because I was a new believer. You know, some of this stuff made my head spin. You know, some of the thoughts that, you know, atheism, well, what about dinosaurs? And what about the gap theory? And, and what about Jesus? And what about the Gnostic Gospels? All this other stuff. And God gave me Colossians 2.8 as a new believer. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition rather than on Christ. Um, and it all comes down to, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 8, he says, for nothing can be done against the truth, but only for the truth. So Paul had a passion for the truth. I hope you have a passion for the truth. And it's just the, the clear, straightforward message of the Bible. Let's don't complicate it. Let's keep it simple and let's understand the truth that is in Christ Jesus, that's in the Word. Amen? Amen. I want to pray one more time. Father, thank you for your Word. Lord, as we get into it now, as we... We get into our Bible study where we're encouraged to not be taken captive. Lord, just uh, enrich our hearts in the truth of who you are. And let, let our feet be firmly planted in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Question for you this morning. What's the most important characteristic or trait of a pastor, of a leader, some people might say it's uh, education. Some people may say it's leadership. Some people may say it's speaking ability. And all those are important. But perhaps one of the most important characteristics of a pastor or a leader is, is, is a love for the church. A love for the body of Christ. 
The Apostle Paul, he loved the body. He loved the church. He loved making disciples. That was his driving passion, was to make disciples. And he felt very near and dear to all the churches he founded. Listen to what he said in Philippians 1.7 concerning the, uh, the church at Philippi. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. That's what Paul said about the church of Philippi. Listen to what he said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. He says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul said, I would expend my life for you to understand the gospel and for, and for my love for the church and for them to be built up in the faith. And because of this love, because of this love he had for the body, the Apostle Paul would not put up with false teachers. He would not put up with false teachers. He would not um, put up with abuse in the church. And he would not tolerate any deception. And I believe that's the point of, of, of the driving force of what the Holy Spirit is having the Apostle Paul right here. The title of my message this morning is Do Not Be Deceived. Don't be deceived. Throughout history, there's been a battle for the simple, straightforward truth of the gospel. Again, we don't complicate it. It's so simple, a, a, a child can understand the gospel. That we repent, we believe, we trust in Christ, and, and, we, and, we, and we follow him. But throughout history, there's been a lot of, um, there's been a battle for the truth for the past 2,000 years. Heresies and false teachings have come in and out of the church today, and even 2,000 years ago. I want, to talk, I want to give you a little background on some of the, the heresies. I call them the isms that the church has faced in the two, past 2,000 years. The first one is Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which we believe were, is what happens to... This is the, the church at Colossae. We believe that this was beginning in the church at Colossae. And it fully blossoms in the second century into, into Gnosticism. But they believe humans were smarter than God. They elevated human wisdom over scripture. They believed everything spiritual was good and everything earthly was bad. And because of this, they denied the humanity of Christ. A modern day Gnosticism would be new age. You know, it's you can believe in Jesus, but you also can believe in horoscopes. You can also believe in all these other spiritual things. But that was a false teaching, Gnosticism. The next one, one of the, one of the major heresies the church faced, was Arianism. It was named after a third century false teacher named Arius who taught and denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He believed that Jesus was created. And in doing so, he also denied the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Arianism continues today in what we know as uh, modalism and um, a, a Jehovah Witness, but it denies the deity of Christ. And for 2,000 years, it's been considered a heresy. And then there's the one that we've talked a lot about at Calvary Chapel Armo in our verse-by-verse -verse study, and that's called legalism. Legalism, it adds works to salvation. It started in the very, it actually started in the first century uh, with the Judaizers. It's the, it's the Jesus plus religion. It's trust in Jesus but you also got to follow these, follow these ceremonial rules. Or you also got to follow the law. It's Jesus plus. And that is false teaching called legalism. And then 
the legalism was Jesus plus religion, well, then there was also the extreme opposite of that. It's called antinomianism. Antinomianism, it takes the principle of salvation by faith and grace to the point of asserting that believers do not have to obey God's moral law. It ignores the subject of sin. Obedience is not required. Uh, they reject the moral law. They reject church discipline. And they reject the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit and conviction. You know, it's, it's basically, basically antinomianism is Christianity without convictions. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. By this, you will know that you've come to know Christ, that you obey his law, that you obey his word. Paul nailed it on this uh, antinomianism in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And what was the answer? No. No, may it never be. Christianity is about, is about us dying to ourselves. When you come to Christ, you die to the old man, and the new man comes alive. So the old man plays no part. But again, as I was going back to talking about these, these heresies throughout history, there's always been a battle for the, for the simple, straightforward truth of the gospel. Jesus said in John 14, 6, we all know that verse by heart, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe this is why the Apostle Paul wrote, and gave us, actually the Holy Spirit through Paul, gave us the book of Colossians so we could stand firm on the truth and not be deceived and not be, not be uh, blown to and fro by all the winds of doctrines and teachings, but have our feet firmly planted in the truth of God's word. So now, with that introduction, let's go into our verse-by-verse study. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, For I want you to know how, how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Interesting. The Apostle Paul never went to the church at Laodicea. We, it, the, the church at Laodicea, excuse me, the church at, um, not Laodicea, the church at Colossae, is the pastor was Epaphras. Epaphras was one to Christ under Paul's ministry at Ephesus. And Epaphras goes from Ephesus and, and, and starts a church in Colossae. But he says, I, w- I want you to know how great a struggle I have. That, uh, that greatest struggle is a, is a deep conflict that Paul's having. It's anguish. The Greek word is agon. I mean, it, from whence we get the English word agony. Paul is really wrestling with what is taking place there. He's upset that believers are being dragged away from plain, pure, simple devotion to Christ. Walking in God's grace and walking in God's truth. And it's, it's upsetting him. That's the struggle that Paul is having in verse 1. And then, and then Paul is now, he's laying, the found, he's laying the foundation of truth and his love for them as he prepares them for Colossians 2.8. Look at verse 2. His pastoral heart, we see it in verse 2. He says, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. This was Paul's heart for this church that he had never been to, that he had never seen. Epaphras had come to him to Rome while he was in prison. Uh, Paul sent with uh, this letter back with Epaphras to Colossae. 
But what this reveals in verse 2 is this is the heart of the shepherd. This is the heart of the Apostle Paul, and this should be the heart of every pastor, every teacher, every shepherd, every person, even believers in the body who minister to other people. This is what you want to see in other people. This is um, what you want to see. Look at the five things. He says, I want you to, um, I want you to understand the gospel at the end of it. Uh, it comes from a full assurance. He, I want you to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says, uh, we're kind of going in reverse, but then he says, I want you to understand that there's true knowledge. People can have knowledge of God. The Gnostics believe that God was so high and lofty, he was unknowable. But Paul says, that is not so. The true and living God that's come to us on earth through Jesus Christ, he is knowable. And what does it produce? What, what they are, um, in verse 2, encouragement. Paul saying, I want you to know the encouragement of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, not only does he come into your life and forgive you of your sin and give you his Holy Spirit, but then he encourages you. He pushes you forward. And that's what every shepherd wants for their people. We want to encourage people. We want people to leave here encouraged in Christ. Now, that, 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 that does not mean we're not going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about sin. Because what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit comes and does what? It convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we want, there, we want God to come in and change our lives and transform us and sanctify us and, and take those old things out of our life. But at the same time that he does that, he also encourages us. And then he says, having been knit together in love. The, the number four, the fourth thing a shepherd wants for the body is he wants the people to be knit together in, in love. What love is that? The love of Christ. The same love that Jesus displayed to us at Calvary. The same love that he demonstrates to us on a daily basis. He wants you and I to turn around and show that love to one another. Therefore, proving our discipleship. But proving that we are believers. And then he says, halfway through verse 2, the fifth one that he wants for the church. He says, and attaining to all the wealth. What is, the, what is the wealth? The wealth that Paul is talking about is the riches of Christ. His forgiveness, his, his blessing, his presence, that he's given us a new heart. There is wealth. There is riches in Christ. And he wants to give us those riches. And he wants to bless our life and be with us and transform us and change us and enable us to go out and make a difference in this world. Not because it's you and I working, but because it's him working in us. That's the heart of a shepherd. That's what Paul wants for the church at Colossae. Look at verse 3. He says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm going to repeat that one more time. So we, I want us to look at this. This is a Amazing verse, in whom, talking about Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This would have been a very offensive statement to the Gnostics. Because they considered what? They considered their wisdom and their knowledge to be, to be supreme, to be the highest level. You know, Plato and, and all those Greek philosophers that was considered to be the high and lofty knowledge. Well, Paul would say here, I disagree. 
I disagree. Your Greek philosophy is not the highest form of knowledge. It's not the highest form of wisdom. Matter of fact, I believe Paul would say, your wisdom and knowledge is nothing compared to Jesus. It's nothing compared to Christ. Verse 3 is telling us this morning that Jesus Christ, he alone possesses all wisdom and all knowledge. Think about that for a minute. Jesus possesses all wisdom and all knowledge. You know what that means? And this is, this is hard for me to get my brain wrapped around. That means there's nothing that God does not know. He has all knowledge throughout everything in the universe, throughout everything in the earth, your human body, the details of who you are. He knows it all. Because he has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. And nothing compares with his wisdom and knowledge. You could, today, you could go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. Stanford. You could go to all the Ivy League colleges in the world. You could go into their library. Take all their books off the shelf. Take them all. Stack them up. All that wisdom. All that knowledge. We're talking... Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, throw in Clemson, USC, throw them all in there. And Jesus Christ outweighs them all. Hello? He outweighs them all. We have this, we have this five ounces of brain inside our skull. And I love wisdom. I, I love knowledge. I love learning about culture, and, and I love learning about things in the world, and, 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 I, and, and I, love, I love taking in information. Uh, since I've become a pastor, I spend so much time reading. You can ask my family. I spend so much time reading during the day, at night, and I, I love to take in knowledge. But even if I studied every single day for the rest of my life, 20 hours a day, and everybody else here did too. And we put all that knowledge into one little speck of dust. Jesus' wisdom and knowledge is like the size of the universe. He knows everything. That's how great your Savior is. That's how great and magnificent that your God is. Your God that died on the cross. That's how great and how magnificent it is. But it's also a warning to us. Uh, not a warning, but it's an, an admonishment. Yeah, it could be a warning. He knows our thought life. Yikes. He knows our thought life. He knows what we think. He knows what we do. He knows where we go, what we look at with our eyes. I constantly pray, Lord, help me to protect my mind. Help protect my mind. Help protect my heart. There's nothing I can hide from you because you see everything. Everything is laid bare before him. So the best thing for you and I to do is just be honest. Just be honest. And say, Lord, I'm going through this struggle. You see it. You know it. You know what I'm thinking. Lord, please help me. Please help me. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And then find our brother or sister in Christ that will come alongside you and hold you accountable. He, Jesus, his, going back to verse 3, Jesus 
His wisdom and his knowledge outweighs everything. It's an amazing. I've crossed the Atlantic three times by ship. That's a lot of water out there. That is a lot of water. It is mind-blowing when, when they, they, they tell you, well, we're halfway across the Atlantic. And you go out there and you look in every direction, and it's nothing but water and blue sky and this little line that connects it all. He made all that. That's the wisdom. That's his, that's his handiwork that he made. Amen? Verse 4. Verse 4, he says, uh, I say this so that no one will delude. Some of your translations say deceive. No one will delude or deceive you with persuasive arguments. Paul's not saying here that they're deceived, but what he is saying is this. The writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall, and he's warning them. False teaching will wreck your faith. It will deceive us. It will deceive us, and it does exist. Let's look at, some, look at what Jesus said about false teachers um, in Matthew 7.15. Matthew 7.15, up on the screen, it says, uh, Jesus says, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are what? Ravenous wolves. The key there, it says, it says they come in what? They come in sheep's clothing. That means, man, they look good on the outside. They got some suave words, the things they say, the things they do, and they look like sheep on the outside. But what does Jesus say? Because that's what's important. What does Jesus say here at the end of the verse? But inwardly, they're what? They're ravenous wolves. What does a ravenous wolf do? A lot of times, they, they're, they're rabid. And they, they'll, but but what, they, what does a ravenous wolf do? They first, either they'll kill you and eat you, or if you're lucky and you're fast enough and maybe you can get away, They'll bite you, and they'll infect you. And that, my friend, is what false teaching does. It'll, it'll, either one, it'll kill your faith. It'll kill your faith because you're, you're deceived. Or it'll infect you. In other words, it gets in your brain. You can't get it out. Listen to what Paul said to the uh, Ephesian elders as he was getting ready to go back to Jerusalem. On the shores, if you go back in and, and, and um, study Acts chapter 20, this was a very intense situation. It was so intense that after Paul speaks these words to him, it says that his disciples, I'm getting goosebumps now, it, it says that the, the men there, they wept. This was in a very emotional moment between Paul and, and, the, and his elders at Ephesus because he would never see them again. He says, Paul says, be on your guard, be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased by his own blood. I know that after my departure, here it is again, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own, your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul warned the Ephesian elders, man, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Protect the body. Protect the body. We're going to see as we, a few verses later, the gospel is simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simple. You repent, you believe, you follow. But false teachers will, will come in and they'll introduce unbiblical things. Two characteristics this morning I want to give you. Two characteristics of a false teacher. Number one, they distort the gospel. I get this from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 
where John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is what? From God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. The first thing that Pastor David looks for when I'm, I'm, I'm interested in a ministry or want to go check out a church, my first question is, what do they say about Jesus? That's my first question. Who, who, who is Jesus? You know, I'll either go on their website, look at, look at their doctrinal statement, or I'll go out on YouTube, listen to some messages, but I, I, I want to know. I want to know. Just because I want to make sure that there's biblical integrity in this ministry and that they're, they're upholding on the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Doctrine does divide. We believe Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, second member of the Trinity. He never had a beginning. He never had an end. Born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's coming again. We have to hold fast to what the Bible clearly teaches on who Jesus is. And it's so simple, but we got to hold to it. But the first characteristic is they'll distort that in some way. And we have to be careful and avoid people. That, that, that's a non-negotiable. There's no wiggle room on the doctrine of Jesus Christ. The second characteristic of a false teacher is this. They disregard the Bible. They disregard the Bible. I get this from 2 Timothy 4.3. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Now, Paul here, he, he's addressing the teacher, but he's also addressing the people that are, hey, they, they're just wanting their ears tickled. In other words, what basically what he's saying is they just, they, they want to hear what they want to hear. You know, they want to hear what they want to hear and not what they need to hear. But the false teacher, he'll twist. He'll, he'll, he'll twist scripture, he'll mangle it, or, he'll, he'll, or he just won't, he won't teach it. He, he, they'll just avoid the Bible. You know, um, many, many years ago, 10, 15, 16, 17 years ago, me and Irene were looking for a church. And now we were looking for the, we, 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 we were looking at churches with the foundation of Christianity. You know, we would look and investigate. But when we would go on Sunday mornings, we had really had one criteria. We, we had one criteria when we'd go into a church. We'd want to go into a church, and we'd want to see the pastor teach from the Bible. That was just our one criteria. It's just, just teach from the Bible. Just, just, teach, just, just teach from the Bible. You can teach on tithing. You can teach on creation. You can teach on, on the gifts of the Spirit. You can teach on revelation. I don't care. I don't care. Teach any point, any, any, any book, any verse. Just, just please, pastor, teach me from the Bible. That, that was my thought process. This is long before I became a pastor, okay? This is long before. This was many, many, many years ago, like 04, 05, 06. This is, is, is this time frame. I was like, just teach me the Bible. You know, I, I, I get up early in the morning. I get Emily and Daniel breakfast, get them all dressed up, get them out the car, buckle them in the car seats. It takes a lot of work to get to church on Sunday mornings. 
And so my thought process, well, when I get there, man, after I go through all this work, man, open that book. And let's take a look and see what it has to say. That was my one request, is that we, that we learn from the scriptures. Verse 5. Verse 5. He's work, Paul is working his way up in these eight verses. He says, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. I like this, man. Paul is saying, okay, guys. Okay, guys, you're looking good. I see some good discipline in you. I see some, uh, some solid uh, faith in you. And this is what makes a pastor rejoice. I, you know what makes me think about? It makes me think about the final formation when somebody graduates from basic training. Those trainees show up to basic training, and they are all jacked up. They can't get nothing right. Their hats, out, out, their, their uniforms messed up. Their hats cocked sideways. They're not dressed right dressed. They're not doing nothing right. And drill sergeants eat them up. But on that final formation before graduation, man, they are standing tall. And they are looking good. And I believe that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, guys, you started, you started off rough. You came in here with all your baggage and all your junk. But now you're looking good. Paul says, hey, he praises them. He praises them here. There were, there were believers at Colossae. That were, that were like, you know what, um, we're getting it right. So he, he's not just coming down hard on them, but he, he's lovingly encouraging them. And that's the way we approach correction, is not to lambast somebody or not to take a Bible and thump them over the head, but to lovingly, kindly speak the truth in love and encourage them towards Christ. You know, I, I, can, I can only share from my example and my example in life. What has helped me the most? What, what has helped Pastor David the most with, with, with um, verse 5, with good discipline and stability of faith? The thing that's helped me out more than anything is good, solid Bible teaching. Just, just good old-fashioned good old solid Bible teaching. You know, um, I expend my energies and studies so I, can, so I can feed the body, so we can go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so I can teach it accurately and correctly. But, you know, in my personal time, I need to be fed too. I need to be fed. Oh, do I need to be fed? Oh, my goodness. On a, on a daily basis, I need to be fed. So i thankful for the Internet, thankful for YouTube, thankful that all the pastors out there have their messages online, but Pastor David, to get good stability of, 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 of discipline and faith, I go out and listen to Bible teaching on my own and sit at my computer and listen to Chuck Smith teach verse by verse through the Bible. It blesses my socks off. John MacArthur, his expository, in-depth word studies. Man, it, it feeds me. It encourages me. Alistair Begg. Have you ever heard of Alistair Begg? Little, little Scottish accent, man. If you're in that mood late in the evening to get your cup of coffee out and listen to some Alistair Begg, his voice alone is so cool. His voice alone is so cool that his Scottish accent in teaching the scriptures is beautiful. Uh, many years ago, 06, 07-ish, we, I, I, I got the awesome opportunity. We went to um, Ohio that summer. We went to the Creation Museum with uh, Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, and then it just so happens that was Easter Sunday. I got to go to Parkside Baptist, or not Parkside, Park Baptist Church in Ohio to see Alistair Begg preach. 
But it was just a beautiful ministry. But Alistair Begg, a Baptist pastor, he preaches verse by verse through the Bible. Sandy Adams. I love Sandy Adams, the regional Calvary Chapel pastor up in Atlanta. Love his verse by verse teaching. How about this one? This guy's been around for a long time. Chuck Swindoll. Raise your hand if you ever heard Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll, just a wonderful teacher of the word. I love his emphasis on, on joy. I don't know if you remember hearing him teach, but he loved to stress joy. But me, that's where, I've, that's where I have grown the most and received my, uh, my good discipline and my stability of faith is going out. And there's many other pastors I'll, I'll listen to, but just going out and listening to the, uh, those pastors teach. And let it be the same for you. You know, come in Sunday morning, get your word, let's study it, but find your favorite teacher. Go to find their website and pop in the headphones and listen to some good Bible teaching. Because that's what all, all these men have in common, is they teach through the word. Verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul says, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. As I, as I opened up my message with, I was talking earlier, this verses 6 and 7 is, is, is what I would put. If I had a title for these two verses, the simplicity of Christ. The simplicity of Christ. Salvation is simple. Let's don't complicate it. Let's don't make it hard. There's not ten steps and you're saved. It's one step and you're saved. And that's Jesus. So simple. A child can understand this. No degree is required to understand your Bible. Just simply read, um, read your book and believe what it says. What's the best translation? I need to go ahead and let you all know now. The best translation out there of, of, the, of the Holy Bible is the one that's in your hand. The one that's in your hand. Whatever, whatever translation you have, read it, believe it, and receive it. But he says in verses 6 and 7, talking about the simplicity of following Christ, he says, uh, therefore as you have, here it is, number one, you receive Christ Jesus. You have to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to become a Christian. It doesn't happen by osmosis or just thinking about it, but you have to invite him and you have to receive him. As your Lord and Savior is what Paul is saying. Second half of, look at the second half of verse 6. He says, after you receive him, you walk in him. You walk in him. That means you live out your life for him. You know, there's, there's, there's obedience. There's doing what the Bible says and living out his commands. So we receive him, then we walk in him, and then it's time for reinforcement. Verse 7, we uh, having been firmly rooted it's the picture of a, of a, a beautiful flower being planted. And, and, and you're the flower, and you have roots. And those roots are going down into the earth to get what? Nutrients. Where do we get our nutrients from? Scripture. From reading and studying the Bible. Let your roots go deep. And then he says in verse 7, <clears throat> and then what happens? When you go deep, it says you're now being built up. You're being built up. The more nutrients you get, the flower, the more nutrients it gets out of the ground, the bigger it grows. It's the same with us, guys. It's the same with us. The deeper 
we go in our study of Scripture, the deeper we go in worship, the deeper we go in prayer, the more that you and I will be built up into being followers of Jesus Christ. And that's how we grow. And this is, verses 6 and 7, is a beautiful blueprint for avoiding deception. Because it's simple. It's simple. It's so easy, the, the Geico caveman could understand it. But it's, it's easy. It's, it's, it, that's how, how simple it is for the humble heart that receives him. And we're going to close out here with verse 8. I'm going to spend some time here on verse 8. But verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul is working up to uh, verse 8. Many scholars believe, and I agree with them, that uh, verse 8, Colossians 2, 8, is the centerpiece of the book of Colossians. It is why it was written. As we continue into our study next week, we're going to see the dangers of asceticism and, and religion and all these other things that will try to come in and convolute, distort the gospel and keep us from pure devotion to Christ. But verse 8 is the pinnacle of the book of Colossians. Let's take a look at it. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Let's, let's look at this. Let's break this down, each portion of the, of the verse. First part of it. Verse 8, he says, see to it. My friend, you and I have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. You, it's on you to see to it that you don't fall into deception. It's, it's, it's on you. It's not on Pastor David. I'm not responsible for your salvation. It's on you to get into the word and get into your studies. It's on you to investigate who you listen to and who you don't listen to. The, the, the responsibility is on is, 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 is an individual basis. It's, it's, it's an individual's responsibility to get into the Word. It's an individual's responsibility to have fellowship. It's an individual's responsibility, here, you ready for this? To be a Berean. To be a Berean. And making sure what the speaker, pastor, teacher, whoever it is says, make sure what they say is biblical. Make sure what they say lines up with Scripture. And then he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. That word captive. Taken in. Handcuffed. Placed in a dungeon. That's what deception does. That's what false religion does. It handcuffs you. It takes you in. And it puts you in a dark dungeon. And you got all this stuff floating around in your head. And God says, my gospel is simple. My gospel is simple and it's straightforward and it's easy to understand. Philosophy, religion, when it comes to our spiritual life, it, it, will, it, will, it brings deception. It brings bondage. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Philosophy is man's wisdom. It's man's uh, way of thinking. It's man's rational thought um, uh, separate from God, separate from, from an external source like the Bible. It's just the way he thinks it up and the way he processes it. That's what philosophy is. He says, an empty deception. Empty deception is uh, seat, deceitful words. Deceitful words. Why are they deceitful? It says right there. They're empty. That means there's nothing in them. There's no wealth. There's no filling. There's nothing on the inside. Not so with the Bible. It is full. It is rich. 
It will bless your life. It will encourage you. It'll make you love Jesus. It'll make you want to follow him more as you, as you dive into it. But not so with, with these, what Paul's saying here. He says it's empty deception. It's empty. There's nothing to talk about because there's nothing there. According, verse 8 continuing, according to the traditions of men. The traditions of men, these, these are, are writings that people make equal with the Bible. That's, that's what traditions of men are. Uh, the Pharisees had one. They, they had a, that Jesus condemned it. The traditions of men. Is, uh, there's nothing wrong with commentaries. There's nothing wrong with your favorite books. I mean, I love reading. I love reading about other things. But nothing, no book in existence is equal with the Bible. The Bible's up here. Everything else is down here. And nothing can be brought equal. You can't say, you can't say something authoritatively to be a spiritual truth from a book that's outside the Bible. Jesus warns against that. Against that. Or taking what men say. Just the straightforward truth of the Bible. Again, there's nothing wrong with commentaries. I love commentaries. I read lots of commentaries. But those, but but again, they are what they're what they're called. They're a commentary. That means there are man's comments on the scripture. And I love them and they help me understand it. But the scripture is supreme. We we scripture judges us. We don't judge scripture. Uh, the next one here is uh, oh, okay, he finishes up the verse. He says, oh, according to the elementary principles of the world. What are the elementary principles of the world? These are all the ungodly principles that we left behind before we came to Christ. You know, before you came to Christ, you, you had a set standard. You, you, you had principles that you lived by. And chances are, if they were like mine, they weren't godly. We leave those behind. We leave those behind. We let them go. And we say, you know what, I'm not going to live that way no more. I'm not going to live by the set standard that I had before Christ. What I considered right and wrong, I'm not going to do that. I've got, I've got a new standard. I've got a new principle. And the principle is God's word. And then he finishes up the verse. In verse 8 he says, uh, Rather than according to Christ. What Paul is saying here this morning in this scripture, what he's saying here is there is nothing more important than a human being knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if anything stands in the way, remove it. Whether it's philosophy, tradition, um, religion, don't let it stand in the way of knowing Christ. Nothing wrong with philosophy, okay? I've studied Sigmund Freud. I took the the college classes and I was interested to see how he thought, how he processed the world. That's totally cool. But, 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 I, but I keep it where it's at. It's, it's his writings, and he's a man, and I don't elevate it. I don't elevate it to Scripture. Jesus Christ, in his wisdom, in his knowledge, and I wouldn't say in the Bible too, because it's his word, is sufficient. It's sufficient. It's enough. It is everything we need. The number one tool that will keep you from, from deception is that book you have in your hand, the Bible, and a personal, simple relationship with Jesus Christ and, and, and a desire to move forward 
in your relationship with God by loving him, trusting him, walking in the spirit, spending time in prayer, and spending time in the word. That's our greatest guard for um, avoiding deception is just following his word. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. And Lord, help us at Calvary Chapel Irmo and all the believers that are here this morning. Help us, Lord, to be Bereans, to diligently study the scripture, to make sure that the things that we're hearing are correct and are biblical. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And Father, it's because we want to know the truth. Because when we know the truth, the truth sets us free. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this guard you've given us um, against deception. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen.